This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Helen Oyeyemi discusses her new book, Boy Snow Bird. Then PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan explores the deep world of true crime. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, nonfiction, we've got at number two, Chelsea Handler, known from her TV show Chelsea Lately, and also the author of Are You There Vodka? It's Me, Chelsea, has a, a book called You Gone to Be Kidding Me. It's a, a kind of a humorous travel log for her. And this week it's uh, sold about 20,000 copies. So it's right up there, jumped right up. And it's the only newcomer on the top 10 list. Going down a little bit, we have a basketball book called uh, Showtime Magic, Kareem Riley in the Los Angeles Lakers Dynasty of the 1980s. This is by Jeff. Perlman. It's out from Gotha Books. And we say that uh, the book is inspired, is just as enticing, full of fast breaks, dramatic intensity, and celebrity sightings as one might in L.A. So, wow, a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything, and and it is it does talk about you know the whole uh, L.A. Lakers and the Showtime that they really put on a show, and all the celebrities, the L.A. celebrities who continue to this day go there. I mean, and and when you're looking at sports and you're looking at a town like L.A. as it were, uh, there's no professional football team. You have professional hockey and mm-hmm. professional basketball and baseball, uh, of course, but uh, basketball rules in that city. So it's, it's it's a good book for that, and that's at number 22. And at number 26, we have a new one from Dave Barry, and um, this is a debut. Uh, I mean, he's debuting at 26, and we usually see him a little bit higher, but this is another one of his uh, humor books. You can date boys when you're 40. Dave Barry on parenting and other topics he knows very little about. It's out by Putnam. So, And uh, he, he talks about, he describes his role as a 65-year-old dad of a 13-year-old daughter, which uh, in uh, uh, Barry's hands can be uh, humorous. So. Oh, so it's not about how he started dating boys when he was 40. <laughs> yeah, right. No, no. I had, a, I, I had a moment. I heard that title. I'm like, really? <laughs> He's had a life change. Nope, this is about his daughter. <laughs> ah, okay. All, all <laughs> becomes clear. Exactly. So, Rose, what do we have in fiction? In fiction, we have a, a new number one. It's number one with a bullet over 30,000 copies sold on the hardcover mm-hmm. fiction list. That's Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson. It's uh, you know, last, last week we had a David Weber title, science fiction title. This is epic fantasy. Sanderson is uh, really an extremely popular author for both adult and young adult readers. He's got a couple of YA books out. This is the second book in his big Stormlight archive trilogy uh, or possibly series. I'm not sure how long it's going to go on. Uh, the, the first book was The Way of Kings and uh, these books have just been super, super popular. So uh, we have a review of it saying that uh, there, there are several intertwined storylines, which is no surprise given that the book is over a thousand 
thousand pages. Oh, so for wow. those fans of George Martin, this will be no surprise. You can use sure. these books to you know, stop your door or hit a burglar over the head. And that's what they seem to to expect the fans uh, a, a big full tome of, yeah. of writing. Yeah. I mean, th- this is. Uh, even though these books are part of ongoing series, each book itself contains a number of different stories. So it's a very satisfying reading experience to get sort of all these stories put together at once. There's that real epic scope, the sense of a, a grand scale, a lot of things going on, a lot of politics, a lot of violence mm-hmm. in this fantastical setting. And uh, we say that the novel is weighty without being ponderous and it delivers a satisfactory story in addition to also being part wow. of an epic series. So uh, that, that's that's a pretty rare thing. Often with series books, especially book two, uh, it can feel like a bridge between mm-hmm. the beginning and the end. And instead, we've we've got a story here that's very satisfying on its own. Oh, fantastic! And at number two, uh, we have a thriller by Clive Cussler, The Bootlegger. This is co-written with Justin Scott. It's the seventh adventure for Isaac Bell after 2013's The Striker, which Scott right. also co-authored. Uh, and you know, it's a Clive Cussler thriller. Great. Great. <laughs> that's that's what there is to say about it. Um, there there's ships and oceans and international politics and dastardly deeds. Uh, and we said the early books in the series were near parodies of period pot boilers. Um, these are set several decades in the past uh, with you know, common turn agents scheming to take over America. Um, but we say that more recent entries will impress thriller readers as laudable historical action novels. Mm. So. Yeah. Kessler's been writing thrillers for probably longer than I've been alive. I know, I and know, uh, he's he's still got the touch. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. So that's number two on right. our hardcover fiction list. Oh, it sounds good. And that's what we've got. Some big sellers there. Indeed. And uh, I'll be interested to see how the Sanderson does, particularly. I think it, it might have some staying power sure. and hang out on the list for a little while because uh, those those first week numbers are looking right. very strong. Uh, well, we'll continue to watch it. Sounds Absolutely. Good. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Helen Oyeyemi will tell us about turning Snow White inside out. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Helen Oyeyemi on the line. Her new novel is Boy Snow Bird. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, tell us about your book. Boy Snow Bird is my retelling of the Snow White fairy tale set in 1950s and 1960s Massachusetts, and it's told partly from the perspective of um, the Wicked Stepmother figure. Um, in my book, this Wicked Stepmother is called Boy Novak, and she's desperately trying to avoid playing that particular role. So why uh, pick Snow White to tell? How did you uh, come up with that uh, inspiration? I wanted to write a book against mirrors, and the villain in the Snow White fairy tale, to me, is the mirror. Um, so it was a good way to sort of destabilize the authority that the mirror has in that story. And the mirror says, snow is the fairest of them all, and um, and just waits for the consequences to unfold um, from that declaration. But in my story, um, the three women are sort of not held captive by the mirror in that way. They, In fact, they, they scare mirrors a little bit by challenging them. 
So mirrors aren't really seen as characters usually. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about the mirror in Snow White as a character. Why did you decide to, to focus on that and to set the mirror up as a force of its own? Um, well, I think that something that speaks automatically begins to have a character. Um, so it's just that the mirror just happens not to be human, um, which actually probably makes it even more of a scary figure. You have this inhuman voice um, that is declaring authority over beauty and linking beauty to value as a human being. And just thinking about that, um, certainly thinking about beauty standards um, in the 50s and 60s, the time during which the novel is set, but not just beauty standards, but, um, but the way that people's looks were connected to the rights that they could expect from their government um, in certain parts of the country. Right, and you connected that to race, to the, the question of the white skin being the most beautiful skin. Yes, that, that's something that's very explicit in the fairy tale, something that's... Um, sort of mix of perplexing and amusing um, for a black teenager to read <laughs> in a story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, fairest, even the fairest of them all, it, it means both the most pale and the most beautiful. Yeah, and I think that the Snow White character in my book, she's, she's unreadable. Like it's, it's very difficult for anybody to sort of place her. Um, or, I mean, mostly they just sort of stand by her beauty. Um, but in an, in another sense, there's nowhere that she really doesn't. There's nobody who really longs for her when she's gone. Um, there's nobody who really um, reaches out to her. So she's almost she's almost in a kind of limbo um, of created by her own um, strange beauty. She sounds like a character it would be hard to sympathise with. That's what I thought, but the more that I wrote especially because I was writing into the characters um, of Boy, Snow and Bird, it sort of helped to begin with Boy and the way that um, Boy feels quite exasperated by the way that other people try to pigeonhole her. They see her as a, as a sort of icy blonde and she she obviously has all of these feelings um, <laughs> that, that she just simply doesn't share, so she's constantly misread um, and she finds a way to live without anyone bothering her by just allowing people to misread her and just living her own life quietly, independently within herself. And when when you have a character like Boy who's capable of doing that, then you realize that everybody in her world is also doing that. So it's almost like a series of Boy and, and everybody she meets are just a series of images that are interacting with each other very politely on the surface and nobody is actually really communicating. And so, at some point, you know, the characters, especially if they're looking for something other than a surface connection, they need to sort of break through that. And a lot of the book, especially later in the book, is uh, in the form of letters. There's some dialogue, there are transcripts of conversations. Is that how the characters get under the surface? Is that how they reveal themselves through words rather than images? Yes, they're trying to speak directly to, to each other's minds, I suppose. They're trying to reason with each other and, um, and find ways of bypassing the image that appears in mirrors or doesn't appear in mirrors, as the, as the case may be. 
One of the things that um, the girls, Snow and Bird, talk about is that both of them sometimes are not reflected in mirrors, which feels to me like a fantastical element, but they deal with it in, in a way that feels very real world, like if that happens, then doctors study you and uh, and so yeah. forth. So tell me a little bit about that, that fantastical element and the way it, it interacts with the real world with this very concrete time and place setting. I think once you start to write and think about individual characters, you're sort of dealing with um, the times when your individual perception is at odds with the accepted terms of reality. So obviously the accepted terms of reality is that you look into the mirror and you see yourself. But for these two girls, there's something going on between them that makes it not always possible for them to see themselves when they walk into a mirror and you know obviously you can take this on all sorts of levels but um, for them it is a fact that, that it's very 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 difficult for them to see themselves whether that's in their mind's eye or in the mirror and part of the reason for that is their sisterhood and the strange inability for their family to see them as sisters and to, to physically see them as sisters because they look so different. Your second book, The Opposite House, has some mythological elements, but those came from Cuba. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and your interest in that mythology? I was interested in myths that travel and how they change as they travel. Um, and as with lots of old stories that I look into, I'm interested in what stays the same um, and what can be discarded or what can be changed and what, what must be altered. Um, so in the opposite house, there's a lot of shape-shifting and, and transformation and all that sort of thing. Tell us about your work with Catholic Aid for Overseas Development. Oh, I just did one trip with them um, years ago. It was great, though. Um, it, was, it was very important mm-hmm. to see what was happening out in um, out in Kenya? I went out with CAFOD um, to to look into the work that was being done by women within a tribal community um, who were empowering other women to start their own businesses. It was about making sure that that women were getting financial independence with which to be able to raise their own children. And yeah, that was that was a very humbling thing. What was the the connection there for you? What made that so particularly appealing to you? I had always, I I grew up Catholic, still am Catholic, um, and and at school we would always raise money for Catholic. And so when Catholic gave me an opportunity to go on a trip with them, um, I was really happy to do that. You studied political science at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. How has that influenced your writing? Um, not very much. I think the only thing that really changed me as a person, perhaps perhaps by extension my writing, was that I became a feminist um, at university. In my third year of politics, um, we got to do gender politics, and then I started to realize um, all the things that stacked up against women, and I started to feel, yeah, I started to feel that much more than before that, that it was also my struggle. Is that part of what led to these themes of images and transformation and the hidden self? Because I think people do tend to see those as issues that concern women a great deal, especially in this particular culture. 
partly, but I feel like I've drawn from so many sources that it's that it's hard to see the beginning of it all. Um, but I, but I definitely have become much more interested in in I suppose the way that women are divided are divided from themselves. Mirrors have a part in that. Um, scrutiny has a part in that. Um, the the kind of awful articles that that you see in newspapers where women talk about the moment when they realise they'd lost their looks. Um, mm. All of this has a part in in making it difficult to to get a sense of your own self. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to probe that. We've been talking with Helen Oyeyemi. You can find her book, Boy, Snow, Bird, in stores right now. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan invites us into the dark world of true crime, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan is here to tell us about the spring's big true crime titles. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. Thanks for having me back. I have three books about murders and one book about an alleged gang rape. So this is very different than the, (laughs) the previous visits to the radio show. So tell tell us a little bit about the true crime genre. I mean, obviously these are pretty sensational books, but there's the the idea is that there's uh, that they're nonfiction. They're nonfiction. A lot of them, I think, are written with the the pacing and language of a novel, though. Mm-hmm. Some of them are more focused on the the court cases and from the lawyer's perspective than others. They, I think the genre ranges from the exceptionally lurid to the, the more scholarly treatments. Mm-hmm. So the ones that I'm looking at are in between, mm-hmm. where they would definitely really keep a, keep the readers captive, but also present a pretty balanced portrait of the of the case rather than just focusing on the gore. Mm-hmm. But I. I mean, I th- I think this is a really interesting genre because while you're reading the story, you you feel a little guilty enjoying it so much because you know that real people and real families suffered. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I was reading the the first book that I came to tell you about, I I felt so bad that I was just gobbling up the book because obviously this is um, a source of actual suffering rather than than novel. But I have. In the first book, it's a story about a fake Rockefeller. It's Blood Will Out, the true story of a murder, a mystery, and a masquerade by the novelist Walter Kern. So this one is coming out from Norton Livewright in March. Kern is best known for the novels Up in the Air and Thumbsucker, and both of those have been made into films. So people may be unwittingly familiar with his work uh, through the films. And the book begins when he's still a struggling writer. His novels haven't been published yet. His wife is pregnant. He doesn't money is is tight and in 1998 he accepted the odd task 
of driving a crippled dog from a Montana animal shelter to New York City, where the dog was going to be delivered to its new owner, um, a man by the name of Clark Rockefeller, who it turns out would be later the subject of a nationwide FBI manhunt and convicted of a double homicide. Wow. So he had this very personal connection to the story. Yes, he was actually friends with Clark Rockefeller for 15 years. And then the book talks as much about his experience of being the dupe as as about um, Rockefeller as a master manipulator. I was especially interested in the book because there's a lot of parallels that Kern himself uses um, to Patricia Highsmith's The Talent of Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. And right. it's it's pretty amazing how this man was able to, to lie to everyone, including two wives and a daughter, um, about every single detail in his biography. I mean, it seems like the only true relationships he had were to his pets. What a story. It's an amazing portrait of a sociopath and what it's like to actually have that sociopath in your life. And he interviews um, the man who is Clark Rockefeller um, after he's been convicted. And I I think he, he presents a really good story, but at the same time, it, it was really humane in his, his treatment. He, and also it deals with his own shock at being like someone who is so gullible when he thinks like he's a writer, he pays so much attention, sure. like how did he get sucked into these lies? What I, one thing I thought was interesting was in his interview with PW, he said that um, Clark Rockefeller was like a supercomputer for deception, like evil Google. Hmm. He could just come up with an elaborate lie on the spot. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. So what did we say about the book in our review? Um, we said that it was a masterful true crime narrative that is impossible to put down and that it deserves to become a classic. Wow. That sounds very intense, and especially a thriller writer, you know, or a novelist um, writing one of these books would definitely have the ability to make you feel like you're right there. Well, what's interesting, I think, is that Kern's novels are not necessarily thrillers. I think they were more coming-of-age stories. Um, one was um, interesting. I think one was set. I'm, I'm, I haven't seen Up in the Air, but I think it's. Mm is dealing with consultants traveling all over right. and like that lifestyle. So I think he's actually, he actually writes pretty realistic novels. Yeah. But the, the pacing is, is really well done and also gives you a glimpse of the, the hardships of a writer's life. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it, it's going to appeal to like a wide range of readers. And he's, he's um, written several magazine pieces about the case, so mm-hmm. people may already be familiar with his writing about it. Right. And that book's out now? Yes, that, that book's out this month. And so is the next one, which is about a real Rockefeller. Um, so we're turning from a double homicide to cannibalism. <laughs> Boy, because the, wow, because the, the true crime genre offers so it, much. It does sure. not flinch. So this one is called Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest for primitive art. This one is by Carl Hoffman and published by Mar- um, William Morrow, and it's also out this month. And it's about the notorious 1961 disappearance of Michael Rockefeller, who was only 23 when he disappeared. Um, And he disappeared off the coast of New Guinea in an area populated by cannibals. So I think the suspicion for a long time was that he um, met his fate at the hands of the cannibals, but there was no actual proof of that, and the body was never found. The art that he collected from the area is in the Michael Rockefeller wing at the Met. So it's it's interesting to come across this story when you're in New York and you're actually benefiting from the less-than-auspicious circumstances of collecting the artwork. 
So Hoffman reveals that there was an intricate conspiracy involving the Dutch government and the Catholic Church. And he puts it in a historical context and also humanizes the Azmat tribe, um, even though it's not necessarily clear what exactly happened to Rockefeller Mm because there's no real way to prove it. Mm -hmm. But he takes a sensational case and writes in a a really balanced manner toward toward everyone involved. Hmm. So reveals the conspiracy or, or, or postulates it? I think he finds documentation proving that there was a conspiracy. I think that was long suspected. So I think the pieces were already in the public conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, it's some. I think there probably is a little bit of speculation here. So there's no definitive sure. like these were the cannibals and and they def- this is definitely what happened. But he takes a case that that people may know from the headlines and actually flushes it out. So it's in a socio historical context. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what else do you have? Um, the next, we have another notorious case. Um, it is the 50th anniversary of the death of Kitty Genovese. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Cook has a new book out. This is also from Norton coming out this month and was just um, reviewed in The New Yorker last week. This book is Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America. So in 1964, Kitty Genovese, who was only 27 at the time, was stabbed to death in Kew Gardens, Queens. And the myth was that, or the general assumption was that 38 neighbors watched her being stabbed to death from their apartment windows and did nothing to help. Right. Right. So that assumption was was actually what led to the creation of the 9-11, emergency phone system and Good Samaritan laws and the field of pro-social behavior. But what this author finds is evidence that it was all a myth. There were not 38 witnesses. So what they're saying about like revealing the ugliness of human behavior turned out to be something that was spun by the New York Times. So but a in, wrong number that just took on a life of its own. Interesting. And didn't A.M. Rosenthal write about this? Uh, yes. And he, he wrote about it for the Times, but also in a book. I think he was the editor at the time. Right. Um, and the one in charge of... The right. one who determined how much media coverage the right. case was going right. to get. Right, he ran it in the Times, yeah. And then he wrote a book called 38 right. Witnesses. And That's right. I think the book was reissued pretty recently, and in his his new author's comment, he still stands by the, the 38 Witnesses. Wow. Interesting. You know, I've, I've, with the coverage that this book has gotten, I've also learned some things that I didn't know, um, including that Kitty Genovese was in a relationship with another woman. Yes, uh, he interviews her partner in, mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah, and it turns out she's a very private woman who hasn't spoken about the case except to this author. Mm. And I think he also did like quite a quite a lot of research in in terms of making sure that he's bringing to light new information rather than just going over the, the old mythology. Right. It's hard to believe it's been fifty years. I know. I can't believe that either. It's well, living in New York now, it's also hard to picture a New York where everyone was in a state of panic about the crime and. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the New York that I'm seeing, having moved here six years ago, is is very different. It's very different. Have, having grown up here, I can tell you, it's it's just, it's changed a lot just from when I was young. Well, he said he was especially interested in his Q and A with us. He said he was especially interested in this when the country and the city was on the brink of this dark period when New York was very crime ridden and when it was sarcastically called Fun City. Mm-hmm. So I think the the murder, as he portrays it in this book, really played into people's fears about urban life 
and it was just on the brink of when everything all the social fabric was coming apart in the 60s so the media was able to turn it into this emblem mm -hmm. of something bigger even though that's not really what the case was about wow oh, it sounds fascinating and uh it seems like in kevin cook's hands that he's he's really kind of brought the story back to life yes i, th I think there's going to be a lot of interest in the case because it, it for I think the previous generation or two, the the case was was so famous all across the country. And right. It one thing he mentioned in his interview with us was that the the case led to the creation of neighborhood watch programs, and that in some cases those deterred crime. But the neighborhood watch programs also were back in the public domain last year because of the Trayvon Martin shooting. Mm -hmm. And so that's a case where <laughs> right. the neighborhood watch programs, the Good Samaritan laws. They're, they have this good effect, but in, in terms of the, the paranoia and the potential racism that is involved is also very dangerous. Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, this sounds uh, exciting. You can, you, you, can get our, uh, you can access our Q&A uh, with Kevin Cook on our website. And the two previous well. authors. And the two previous authors as well. Excellent. Fantastic. And I have one more to tell you uh -huh. about. Also a very um, complicated a case from this one is probably the most recent one it's called the price of silence the duke lacrosse scandal the power of the elite and the corruption of our great universities and this is by journalist william d cohen it's out from scribner um out next month mm -hmm. and in fact checking this review it took hours because i kept reading entire chapters of the book mm. um wow and we gave it a starred review and said this book will no, no doubt be the definitive account of the case so i'm sure duke university doesn't want yet more attention mm -hmm. because of this um, notorious case. And I think this, this book will appeal to a pretty wide range too. So it's not exactly true crime. It's, it's, it's about um, a scandalous case of an alleged gang rape, but mm -hmm. it also touches on law and sociology. Um, I think it, it will appeal to a number of readers, but I mean, it's, I, I easily lost two hours just to mm -hmm. to flipping through sections of the book because some of it is is pretty outrageous. But he, I feel like he gives each person their own time, mm -hmm. and he also presents a, a pretty balanced account. And we called it top notch investigative journalism. So for people who aren't familiar with the 2006 case, um, a group of the university's lacrosse players had hired two strippers for the party for a private party, I think it was during spring break, and one of the strippers later claimed that she'd been gang raped. Mm -hmm. So that led to almost a, a trial in the court of public opinion for for the, the, young, the young men who we sometimes forget were only 18 to 22, so they were kids kind of. And they certainly didn't do much to make themselves look good. <laughs> and right. Some terrible emails came out um, in terms of the way they talk about women, the way they talk about African-Americans. It's all very troubling, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that they were guilty of being rapists. And I think Cohen goes back to look at what was happening with the very zealous district attorney, what was happening on the, the part of the women who were hired to dance at the party. And He's, he's trying to untangle some of the, the more sensational aspects of the case and untangle the tensions of racism and sexism and misogyny um, and the, the frat life and the sports culture that was what generated so much attention for the case.
So when you say that it's outrageous, it's the the content, not the way that it's described. The way that, that it's described is very measured and intelligent and balanced. Um, in terms of how the people behave in the book, uh, some of it is, it, it really um, gives you pause. <laughs> and it's also just amazing that the way it's spun out, I mean, the, this case played out in the in the hands of the internet, too. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the, the case for the, the three previous books. And so the way this played out in the media and like the the very famous figures who got involved, I mean, the Duke professors who spoke out about the case, um, it just really wasn't allowed to just exist like, and be prosecuted like a normal case. People sort of took it as a symbol mm-hmm. of something much bigger. But in that sense, it's like the Kitty Genovese case, just you know, with the difference in how people talk now and um, the ways people communicate and the ways that media works. Well, in that case, though, there was an actual crime that yes. occurred. So the here, I mean, the, I mean, if you do a little bit of Google digging, you'll discover the the outcome of the case. But there was a, a huge settlement between Duke University and and the boys who were accused. So. Cohen, I think it's very interesting that he also tracks what happened to the the players afterwards. Hmm. Like how how has the case impacted their lives? Um, some of, I think one of them went on to become a lawyer, and I mean some of them didn't work with him, but the ones who did, they had they had a lot of interesting things to say, and I don't think they were necessarily given a voice when the the trial happened. Right. Wow. Well, of course, this is also topical in light of other sports and university-related scandals, of course, with Penn State. And and so much of what's going on in today's world has been going on where sports is the most important, uh, most obvious thing at a university, and people tend to turn a blind eye. I mean, this is different in this case, but in the Penn State and also in high school football, there was a case uh, just last year in Steubenville, Ohio, uh, about the football players who... Um, uh, had uh, raped a girl and uh, it seemed that the coaches just said they hadn't heard anything about it and this is all for football just allowing it to happen well one thing that I found interesting when I was doing my very slow fact checking for this review was one of the players went home after the party and wrote a, a really outrageous, crazy, offensive on every level email to his friends in the voice of the the narrator of American Psycho. Mm. And like he says horrible things about women, Mm. like jokes about killing them and Mm -hmm. maiming them. And then I think this email got out. Mm. And And that's that's part of what people latched onto. Right. So they, people thought there was a wall of silence by the players and then the media opinion turned against the alleged victim, against the district attorney. So there was just a lot of shouting right. by a lot of people about the case, a lot of which was on TV and the internet. And it's shown a very, very poor light on Duke, which yeah. seems to not be doing well in terms of media sex scandals. Hmm. Right. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, these these all seem like exciting titles coming out in the true crime area. So, so... Thank you so much Ex- for coming on. Exciting and, and, and tragic. And tragic, <laughs> and but, but well told. I mean, we're talking about books, but, but well told. Yeah, they're, they're all, I think, really substantive books about cases that could easily have just been played for shock value. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Jasmine, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 